I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today, Dr. Michelle Gaspar is back with us to talk about feline medicine. We originally introduced Dr. Gaspar in the last full-length episode, so I'm not going to redo her bio today. You can go back and listen to that. If you haven't already, you need to listen to that episode. (laughs) But we are going to do a full episode about my favorite topic, feline medicine. (laughs) Welcome, Dr. Gaspar, again. Well, it's wonderful to be back. So jumping right in, what is it that you love about kitty cats and why feline medicine? Uh, there's so much to like about cats. So <laughs> a fun fact, I did not grow up with cats. Really? We had a dog growing up. We had a little uh, dachshund uh, growing up, Tina, the dachshund. <laughs> Tina. <laughs> and we really didn't grow up in a, in a, in a cat-friendly neighborhood. There were a lot of, uh, a lot of our neighbors had dogs, but uh, no cats. And it wasn't really until um, I met my husband, who had two cats, that I started getting pretty intrigued with them. From an aesthetic standpoint, I mean, is there, is there anything more beautiful, more graceful? And they come in as many flavors and colors as you want. <laughs> but I, I'm particularly intrigued as a clinician because they're a lot more mysterious. You know, I think... I think um, veterinary colleagues and veterinary staff members will agree that, you know, you cut a dog's toenail too short and the dog limps like, you know, you um, broke his leg. A cat can come in with a variety of um, issues and go, yep, still eating, might be losing a little weight, but still feeling pretty good. So I think they're a lot more um, mysterious. They're, to me, much more diagnostically challenging. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's why I gravitated to them. And what are some issues in the feline medicine that you're passionate about and wish more people knew about? You know, my my big interest clinically has always been intestinal disease in cats. You know, I think I think people um and, and this is this is certainly changing with the emphasis now on cats only practices. You know, when I when I entered uh, the veterinary medical field, um, feline exclusive practices were few and far between. Now most large cities have several practices uh, that are geared to cats only, even small and medium sized cities will have feline exclusive practices. So, you know, that's certainly changing, realizing that cats often benefit from a, a different type of care, a cats a cats only practice type care. I also think that what's uh, changing is that people are starting to realize that they are not the totally independent creatures who, um, you know, you just feed and you give them a clean cat box and then they go about their lives. They're emotionally very um, complicated. And I think as, you know, as all the beings with whom we share this planet, you know, cats are not unique. But I think increasingly, particularly in, in urban areas, you know, they are, they are the companion animal of choice. My lifelong clinical interest um, has been in intestinal disease in cats. You know, when I went to veterinary school, um, I thought that 
all cats just got chronic kidney disease and and that was kind of their demise. I think over the last, you know, 30 years, what we're seeing is um, an increasingly sophisticated understanding of intestinal disease, pancreatic disease, liver disease in cats. And so that's where my clinical focus always has been. Let's talk about GI disease in cats. How prevalent do you think GI disease is? I think I think it's the number one disease in cats. I really do. <laughs> yeah. We've all been in, in clinical consultations, right, where, you know, we're going through any coughing, seizing, vomiting, diarrhea, and the client will go, nope, 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 nope. And I would always circle back and say, well, do they ever vomit hairballs? And they would go, the clients would go, well, yeah, but, you know, that's normal for cats. And so then that opens up the conversation. When I was a, when I was a fourth-year student at the University of Wisconsin, they were very liberal in the amount of uh, clerkship time that we had. And so um, I made a beeline uh, to Dr. Keith Richter's practice, Veterinary Specialty Hospital in Rancho Santa Fe, California. And Dr. Richter um, is a very well-known uh, veterinary hepatologist, uh, gastroenterologist. It was a phenomenal experience. And, um, you know, he once told me, and this was kind of my eye-opening experience, hairballs are not due to a grease deficiency. And, you know, I think this is, this is what people think, that hairballs are normal in cats, and that, you know, if you can just give them a little uh, petroleum jelly or, you know, a little kitty laxative that somehow it'll, it will, you know, end the issue. Problem is that, and I, I don't, I don't want to mix metaphors or mix species in metaphors, but hairballs are kind of like the canary in the mine shaft. When cats have them chronically or chronically and intermittently, that usually points to some type of issue with the intestinal tract, and it's usually due to inflammation. And what inflammation does is it slows down normal transit time progression in the intestinal tract. So with increased inflammation, you get increased hairballs, and they're definitely not normal. So what you're saying is hairballs in cats are a sign of an underlying problem with gut motility. Absolutely. And not a no big deal thing that right. we should gloss over. Right. They're not, they're not just, oh, I got out of bed and I stepped on one. You know, that's not the reason why they're concerning. The reason why they're concerning is they're a sign that something's amiss. Now, when we have that consultation with the client and they're saying, no, 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 no vomiting, blah, blah, blah. They're just here for, you know, whatever wellness checkup, you know, kind of thing. But then they casually mention, well, you know, they vomit three or four times a month like all cats. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How important is it for us to jump in there and say, hey, did you know that that's not normal? It's just common? Absolutely. So, you know, that's been, that's been normalized, you know, uh, I think to many people, you know, well, cats just vomit. Well, no, no, they don't. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity to do some very, very basic education. What a normal cat is supposed to do. And what is and what is abnormal, and to me that those have been some very rewarding com you know conversations with clients where 
they actually they actually leave the practice hearing something that they haven't heard before. And I think you can, you know, by by just using that amount of information, you can you can really help your patients. Why is early recognition and management of GI symptoms in cats so important? What happens over time is that the inflammation just keeps on a going. And and this kind of brings us to, you know, what are the most clinically significant signs and symptoms that cats with intestinal disease have and, you know, why diagnose it, right? So um, weight loss is often the only sign of intestinal disease in cats. Most cats don't present with a history of, of vomiting or diarrhea. So, you know, cats do not lose weight just because they're getting old. They lose weight because they have underlying disease. And this is why our submitting lab, lab work now, which is pretty commonplace, is really helpful. The problem with intestinal disease is that oftentimes the lab work is boringly normal. So you can have a cat who has significant intestinal disease and still have normal lab work. And if your veterinarian is not aware that the weight loss, just because there's no diabetes, there's no chronic renal disease, there's no hyperthyroidism, you know, all the, uh, the trifecta of things that we commonly think of with weight loss in cats. If, you know, if he or she just shrugs her shoulders and says, well, I don't know, you know, lab work is, is certainly fine, the kitty can, can go on and can, can, can do quite poorly. There, so there's, there's two kind of pathways for intestinal disease in cats. One is, one is inflammation, which is benign, not cancer. And even within that non-cancerous group, there are some types of intestinal diseases, certain variations of intestinal disease that are more significant than others. The one that comes to mind is an eosinophilic enteritis. And if, we're, if that's not appropriately treated, what can happen over time is that the intestines actually get, get thick. They get like a, like a pipe hose. They get fibrotic fibrosis. And then the kitty cannot absorb nutrients and, and goes you know, through a very profound weight loss. In our older cats, what we're seeing is a disease that you know, sounds kind of scary, but is actually, in my experience, very treatable. And that's small cell lymphoma. All lymphoma means is too many lymphocytes, which is a type of white blood cell. Again, small cell lymphoma does not show up on blood work. It would require some type of biopsy. When I had a clinical practice, I used endoscopy um, quite frequently to diagnose these cats. And as I said, these cats are very treatable. And then there's a subset of our older cats um, and younger cats, too, who can have a very aggressive type of cancer. Um, but in my experience, they're actually very few and far between. Something on the benign side, so we're just going to use the term inflammatory bowel disease. Mm -hmm. If that goes unchecked for long enough, will it always develop into precancerous and then cancerous changes? Not all the time. Not all the time? It is certainly... I think cats with cats with cats I have diagnosed and I you know I you know many many hundreds of cats over over my my clinical career did I diagnose with with small cell lymphoma they all have histories of chronic intermittent vomiting from a very very early age so they most likely had 
some type of intestinal inflammatory disease, now whether they progressed. What small cell lymphoma is, it's normal lymphocytes in the intestinal tract. So in all of our intestinal tracts, we have lymphocytes. They're part of the immune response. And the intestinal tract in all species has a lot of immune complexes going on. You know, there are food antigens that are being presented. There are bacteria in the gastrointestinal tract. So lymphocytes are there, but in the normal patient, those lymphocytes are are brought into the area, they do their job, and then they die. In small cell lymphoma, they don't die. They stack up. And it's the stacking up of those white blood cells that causes the problems with small cell lymphoma. Those tend those cats tend to be at least middle-aged, if not older. So I would say, you know, I would say eight or eight or ten plus in age. And they typically have more profound signs. So greater weight loss. And if they have omnivore diarrhea, that seems to be more chronic. In kitty cats with GI disease, dietary therapy is very important, right? Dietary therapy is one of the most common treatments, but oftentimes it 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 is it can be ineffective as a, as a single treatment. But certainly in a gotcha. certainly in a younger cat, I would go with dietary therapy first. Okay. Now I know that sort of the preferences for what type of diet to feed cats. Uh, with inflammatory bowel disease has sort of changed over time. What are your current thoughts about this? Well, not every one diet works for every patient. And so, you know, I, when, I, when I have a new patient who would present to me, um, I would always take a dietary history as the client is able to give it. Uh, some of these cats, you know, just have a variety of foods that they eat. So it's very, very hard to get a, a concise um, history. I tend to remember that our domestic cats, you know, have ancestors that developed in desert regions. So they tend to, I think, do best with proteins from beings who fly and um, beings who run very, very fast. So that, <laughs> that usually is some type of poultry-based diet or a rabbit-based diet. Certainly within the last five years, um, there's been a plethora of diets. So there are diets with probiotics, and there are diets with specialized proteins, and there are diets that are you know, devoid as much as possible of, of, of other types of, uh, of allergens. So it really kind of depends, depends on what works for each cat. I tend not to place older cats on different diets. Uh, I think dietary switches are often very difficult in older cats. And again, in my clinical experience, and others may have um, a different take on things by the patient population that they see, but my patients have usually needed some type of medication therapy over time in order to control the disease process. When you are considering a diet change, uh, how important is it for the diet to contain a lot of moisture? So it'd be like a canned-only diet. Is that? Yeah, canned, canned, I think, is is definitely the way to go. You know, our cats, once again, uh, have ancestors that developed um, in desert areas. And so cat kidneys um, are extremely efficient um, as far as uh, retaining moisture. 
But cats really don't have a well-defined thirst drive. They don't drink like dogs do. They're, they are kind of designed, and that's in quotation marks, they're kind of designed <laughs> to get their moisture from their food. So I think canned food has definite benefits over kibble. Most of the dry foods tend to be very, very high in carbohydrates. I don't think that um, carbohydrates are necessarily uh, the devil's spawn, but they tend to be not what our cats, once again, as, as obligate carnivores, are kind of specialized to eat. Um, so obligate carnivores, high protein, high fat. What about grain-free diets in cats? You know, I've never gotten on the grain-free diet bandwagon uh, for either cats or dogs. And I'm just speaking, you know, from my own from my own collection of cats and a dog at home and what I've counseled clients over the years. As I said, carbohydrates in and of themselves are not the devil's spawn. There's a there's a tendency to see them as such. And my my dog my cats go out with my dog in the morning into our backyard and they enjoy, you know, chewing on the grass. And, you know, so I think selecting selecting diets that are, are grain-free, certainly for dogs, you know, we have seen some rather catastrophic heart disease with that. And uh, we haven't seen the same in, in cats, but I wouldn't necessarily uh, look for 0% carbohydrates. As far as treatment goes for these kitties, say you have a case um, where you maybe have like a middle-aged kitty. That kitty cat has been losing a little bit of weight, not really having any other symptoms. And you're talking to the owner about working the kitty cat up for GI disease because lab work is normal and you've sort of ruled out your other top differentials for unexplained or unexpected weight loss. And the owner says, gosh, doc, I don't really want to pursue biopsies in this case. What are other options? Mm -hmm. A lot of our cats with intestinal disease, particularly those who have weight loss, are vitamin B12 deficient. And B12 uh, is a very important vitamin. It is absorbed by the ileum, which is the last part of the small intestine. And so if a client says, I can't or I won't pursue diagnostics, I'll say, well, let's start some B12 injections. So we typically give a sub-Q injection or the client can learn how to give those injections at home once a week for six weeks. Interestingly, clients who, cats who are B12 deficient due to intestinal disease, they will not respond to other therapies, other treatments usually until they're sufficiently supplemented. We can test for cobalamin, vitamin D, B12, so mm -hmm. cobalamin is vitamin B12. But if the client, once again, is cash-strapped, and there is no shame in ever telling your veterinarian, you know, look, this is my, this is my financial situation, that allows, that allows the veterinarian to say, okay, we don't have a diagnosis, but you know, presumptively, what we're doing is we're treating for what I think it is based on clinical science and lack of anything else on lab work. So I would, I would use B12. And then most of these cats need an anti-inflammatory, and that's going to be uh, either prednisolone or dexamethasone. So when we're considering B12 supplementation, 
it's not absolutely necessary to spend the money on B12 testing. I like to have B12 testing if I can, mm-hmm. but it is a water-soluble vitamin, meaning that you know what we don't need gets removed in the urine. I have a you know I have a, a, a kind of a personal devotion to the GI lab at Texas A&M University. I think Dr. George Steiner and Dr. Jan Sokodowski um, and their colleagues have done an incredible job really developing elegant testing that has helped veterinary patients. But if a client can't or won't, once again, I, I go to B12. What sorts of criteria do kitty cats need to meet before you decide to pursue a steroid trial? I would say any type of chronic weight loss for which another underlying disease is not readily identified. And, you know, for the cats that present, some clients will present a cat and it's not unusual, you know, even with, I think, um, really good public education, but it's, it's not unusual for some cats not to present to the veterinarian until they're quite elderly. A lot of them have never seen the inside of a veterinary hospital, Yeah, despite our best efforts. And so sometimes we, you know, if we've been able to see a patient um, for wellness exams chronically, we have a we have a history of weight changes, so we can see if there's a, if there's a weight loss pattern. A lot of times, we don't have that luxury. We're seeing a patient for the first time, but there are some clues. Cats with chronic disease often lose weight, muscle mass, or fat along the spine, and so oftentimes. That nice fat pad that a normal cat will have over the spine is lost. You'll be able to feel the individual bones of the spine. I, I think you know that's a that's a kind of a useful tip to give to clients at home if they can't if they can't periodically weigh their cats. And so, if I'm seeing weight loss, if I'm certainly seeing vomiting or diarrhea, I use a physical exam. I was um, I spent I spent a summer at the Animal Medical Center um, in New York City between my second and third year of veterinary school, and um, I went to AMC with one goal, and that was to learn how to do a bang up exam. I learned plenty of other good things too. It was a it was a phenomenal experience. But what my takeaway was the value of a very very thorough exam, and so you know I palpate carefully. I look at my patient, I do an indirect fundic exam where we shut off the lights, and I look behind, behind the eye into the retina to see if I can see any changes. Oftentimes, we'll see inflammatory changes there, and putting all the pieces together. And then, you know, with good client education, we don't have a definitive diagnosis. I can't tell you exactly what's going on, but this, this is my best clinical opinion as to what's going on with the kitty, then I have no problem with the steroid trial. When you are considering a trial, do you have clients sign any sort of a waiver or anything like that about the potential side effects? I don't. So the good news is our cats are pretty resistant to adverse effects from steroids. Overweight cats in particular do run the risk of having a steroid-induced diabetes. 
I I document I document those conversations in the record. I don't have clients sign a waiver. I start with a low anti-inflammatory dose. I treat for 30 days. When I had my own practice, I had a phenomenal technician who was like my right-hand person. She loved talking to clients and we just had we just had clients on a callback every 5 to 7 days for 30 days. None of this works dramatically overnight, so you need some time. I think mm-hmm. the the biggest the biggest issue I see is veterinarians tend to not treat long enough. So I do think treating 30 days and then reassessing is is pretty important. And then one last question about steroid trials in kitties. Um, Mm -hmm. How concerned uh, do you get about steroids potentially unmasking occult cardiac disease in cats? So that's often uh, a question that veterinarians have um, on VIN. The, the work that's been done, so there is a subset of cats with undiagnosed heart disease who have gone into congestive heart failure, typically within, with long-term what are called repository steroids. So um, methylprednisolone acetate, for example, um, depomedrol. But I... I am unaware in my own clinical practice of any patient who is placed on a low anti-inflammatory dose of prednisolone that essentially went into, you know, any type of, you know, congestive heart failure. And it's something that I do I do mention. I don't use I don't use repository steroids. We have seen certainly some cats develop congestive heart failure, you know, on, on other steroids. But in, but in my experience, prednisolone is pretty safe. Well, I think that is like a pretty comprehensive review of GI disease in cats. <laughs> <laughs> what else, is there anything else we need to know on that topic? No, just, yeah. um, just you know, just be aware. And, um, you know, what we might think was normal cat behavior, uh, we have found out not to be the case. So, be vigilant, be attentive, and um, you know, don't delay if your kitty is showing you that he or she isn't feeling well. Yeah. Well, we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about vaccinations in feline patients, current recommendations. So what are your thoughts about the AHA and AAFP vaccine guideline updates that were published in 2020? So... I think that both AHA and especially AAFP have done a tremendous amount of research and have come up with excellent guidelines. You know, when I first uh, was in practice, we used to see more, I think, than our fair share of uh, vaccine-associated sarcomas, so very, very significant tumors that are very resistant um, to treatment, even you know, even advanced surgeries, radiation, chemotherapy. So I have always been a less is more veterinarian when it comes to um, vaccination. I graduated from the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Ron Schultz um, was my immunology professor, and Dr. Schultz has really um, led the charge on appropriate uh, vaccinations, but not throwing everything in the kitchen sink at our cats and dogs. 
Let's briefly review what those guidelines are and what changes there have been. The recommendations are that feline leukemia vaccine should be given um, to all kittens. Feline leukemia is a disease of young cats. So as cats age, they become less and less uh, susceptible to feline leukemia. So the itty-bitties, the young kittens definitely should be vaccinated against feline leukemia, two vaccines, and then boosted. Rabies vaccines are absolutely, I think, top of mind for any cat. Oftentimes, you know, we get pushback from clients and they say, oh, my cat doesn't go outdoors. I will tell you that in the Chicago area, I have been involved with two cases of indoor cats uh, who caught bats in the home. Bats are definitely populations that oftentimes are rabies endemic. So even indoor cats need to be vaccinated against rabies. And then, you know, where I think um, most of the changes have been is in the FERCP vaccine. So appropriate vaccinations for kittens, boosted at a year, and then every three years. And that essentially has been my practice since I graduated. And I was just pulling up the vaccination guidelines to just remind myself of the wording. Um, but if, if I'm not mistaken for FERCP and rabies, there's a new wording that says that adult cats should be vaccinated not more often than every three years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I will say is, and I don't know if this is a question you can answer as much as it's just me wanting to tell everybody how irritated I am. But when I, <laughs> when I, you know, travel and go to clinics and work in different places in Alabama, right. I don't, I don't have experience outside of the state of Alabama uh, recently, but, what I'm seeing is still a strong adherence to yearly vaccination for these things and a, and still quite a reluctance on uh, the behalf of a number of clinicians to embrace three-year vaccines at all. There's maybe some sort of a some sort of an idea that they're quote stronger or, or more likely to cause vaccine reactions and things like that. And that information sort of frustrates me because like looking at the data, that's just not accurate. So I guess uh, what I'll just say is one of the frustrations that I have is that like the recommendations are, are have continued to improve and we're all the way out here at a bold statement. Don't vaccinate any more often than every three years, but we still have people not even considering three-year vaccines as an option. I, you know, it's, cert it's certainly, it, it certainly could be geographic, I think. Okay. You know, at, at least, I hope it is. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, it, this is, you know, it's such a loaded question, right? The, the fact of the, you know, the fact of the matter is that when you look at immune responses and you look at the, the response of the immune system, particularly, you know, memory, right? We know that annual vaccines for FERCP are simply are simply not needed. Yeah. And I it's 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 I, I'd love to think, you know, that our colleagues are trying to be scientifically minded. I hope it wouldn't be for monetization purposes. I'll just leave it like that. Yeah, I hope not too. I hope not too. What I you know of course you know 
I, you never can know like a, the underlying motives of things, but the, so I've, I've been, I've encountered two public explanations for this. The first being what I said before about, oh, well, they're too strong or they're, they'll cause more reactions and things like that. And I've worked with people who are adamant that that is true. And I've been unable to, I've been unable to, to affect their, belief system about that with providing studies like that doesn't seem to change their opinion and then the other thing that i encounter and and this is not so much with cats but like hopping over to dogs really quickly they'll kind of say well if we give the public the impression that you can go longer between say like parva vaccines and Mm -hmm. adult dogs then they're Mm going to automatically assume that vaccinating puppies is an important and the public can't understand the difference between vaccine moderation and being anti-vaccine. So we need to just keep them on that one-year case to not confuse them. That sort of a thing. You know, kind of in, kind of two interesting ways of dealing with it. I do think that there are some, there are some clients who are confused, but I don't think they're in large numbers. And I think that's what client education you know, is all about. I think we have to do a better job of not doing something because it's just easier than having the conversation. You know, I'm thinking, and I'm going to pivot here, I'm thinking about cats who present with interstitial cystitis, lower urinary tract disease. I'm not talking about black cats. And, you know, the clients will often ask for an antibiotic. And and there's there's two ways of dealing with that. You know, you can you could just give the antibiotic, and I don't think antibiotics are benign medications. Or you can have a long conversation with somebody about why you do not believe that antibiotics are warranted in this case and support it. You know, it's not it's not just our opinion. So I feel for a situation that you're in. You know, when when colleagues are failing for whatever reason not to look at national organizations that have stellar panels who have nothing to gain from these recommendations except the welfare of patients yes yeah, so i think you're absolutely right you know the organizations that put out these vaccination guidelines there's like no nefarious plot to decrease vaccination like what would they gain from that you know and, you know, I think I think the other part of it is, I mean, you and I don't get annual vaccines every year. Once a child has received appropriate immunizations, he or she doesn't get vaccines every year for life. And so, you know, I I think I think this is where this is where the public who can access the AHA, AAHA and AAFP guidelines needs needs to you know, needs to get a copy. And, and if their veterinarian right. is insisting on an annual, for example, FERCP for a cat, you know, say, well, what is, what is the reason that, that your opinion is different from, you know, all these people who, as you say, have no nefarious purpose in decreasing vaccines? Right. This is knowledge that is publicly available. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it uh, creates a level of distrust if a client who knows this information goes to a veterinarian who strongly pushes against it 
and and wants to sort of, you know, be potentially like overly aggressive about vaccination. Well, in fact, I don't just think it happens. I know I know of several instances where people have sort of been turned off by seeing a new veterinarian who like wanted to keep yearly vaccinating their cat with a definite cancer diagnosis. And I was like, mm-hmm. <sighs> you know, they are trying to force me to, you know, give yearly vaccinations to my cat who's like hanging on by a fingernail to life in, mm-hmm. you know, where we've been managing mm-hmm. their uh, heart failure from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for six months. And they kind of like are, are very delicate patients and everything. And uh, absolutely. And I've had to step in had to i chose to step in and <laughs> write you know waivers for those patients previously and and continued to do that cuz i was like <laughs> you know like i well, what is the purpose you know like so uh it is what i'll say is that it is an issue that i clearly am passionate about because you can tell like my voice is starting to get like irritated <laughs> and excited <laughs> But um, anyway, Dr. Gaspar, what do you feel like we can do to encourage more veterinary professionals to follow the guidelines that we have? Well, I think that, you know, veterinarians are motivated to do the best for their patients. You know, as we talked about in a previous, you know, session here, we we want to do the best, right? And doing the best requires that we continue to update our knowledge base. Um, things that were true when I graduated in 1994 are found to be no longer true today in 2020. And we can't cling to what we used to know when better information is available. And we have to really ask ourselves, you know, what is, what is, what is the truth and how do we know it's true? And the problem with you know, anecdotal experience, just, you know, what, what we know in clinical practice is we can't, you know, we can't often generalize, you know, it's our, it's our patients. And I think, you know, I've tried in this segment to talk about my clinical experience because, you know, someone else's might be different. But when I see the stellar individuals who are on the vaccine recommendations task forces of AAP, uh, I'm sorry, AAFP and AHA, I mean, who am I, who am I to discount that? Mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. Uh, completely. <laughs> Man, when I look at the education level of the people there, on these panels, I'm like, yeah, who who am I to just be like, nah, that's not right. That's <laughs> not important. And I'll <laughs> point out that some of the people on the board that made those guidelines were actually disappointed that they said no more often than three years mm-hmm. because we've got evidence that it that protection has continued beyond that in in a lot of cases. Absolutely, absolutely. So this is not, a, I've called it kind of a bold recommendation, and I, and I want to back, I want to reverse that a little and say it's an adequate recommendation. It seems bold to some people who are still recommending yearly vaccines, but the bold recommendation would be <laughs> every eight to 10 years mm-hmm. because there's science that backs that mm-hmm. up. So, mm-hmm. 
These are actually middle of the road and not aggressive, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right, exactly. Exactly. Because we have to account for a variety of immune responses. Right. Right. Well, so to anybody listening to this who is surprised to learn that the vaccination guidelines have been updated in 2020, go read them. I think it, you know, that all came out in the middle of the pandemic Mm -hmm. and like wasn't widely publicized because all of the other things that were happening in the world were like, (laughs) whoa, I think people were just trying to do the best they could to just survive on a day-to-day basis. So uh, if you missed those because of life events, like go read them. It's very exciting. Dr. Gaspar, is there anything about like that kitty cat vaccinations that we haven't covered that we need to make sure that we say? I think I would just reiterate that a a client, an individual who wants to do the best for their companion cat should access the American Animal Hospital Association and or the American Association of Feline Practitioners website. Get the latest recommendations on vaccination. If your veterinarian is choosing to do something different, I would have a polite conversation. And, you know, ultimately, you are the best advocate for your companion animal. I would tell clients all the time, I am seeing them in a very, very small slice of your cat's life. You live with them 24-7. But on the other hand, you know, we can't let our own ego, our own narcissism, talk about things that we don't know of. You know, we, we have, we have panels of people who have studied immunology and virology as their lifelong work. Um, and so to discount their recommendations is, is simply not in any cat's best interest. So it behooves clients to be up to date, to follow the veterinary recommendations that are in concert with those two panels and um, enjoy a healthy kitty. Mm-hmm. One thing that I just thought of that we hadn't touched on, but I think we should, is vaccination sites and the importance of having within your practice, you know, a, a set protocol of where you give which vaccination mm-hmm. and making sure that when you're giving vaccinations, you're not giving them between the shoulder blades or or someplace like that. What, Dr. Gaspar, do you have any particular thoughts about vaccination sites in cats? Well, sure. The vaccination sites um, were developed because not too long ago, um, there were great incidents of vaccination um, associated sarcomas. So sarcomas are tumors of, of muscle, of, of soft tissue. And these were, these were seen when the vaccines included adjuvants, uh, particularly aluminum. And so um, the, the problem with vaccine-associated sarcomas, and they can be very resistant to even aggressive treatment, is they need a very extensive surgery. They often need to be followed by radiation to clean up the spots. Um, these vaccination-associated sarcomas actually spread uh, by tendrils, by fingers, if you will. And then some cats needed chemotherapy on top of the radiation and surgery in order to give them some type of disease-free interval. So it was pretty common in the bad old times to just 
give vaccinations uh, between the shoulder blades. And um, this is where we were seeing a lot of vaccine-associated sarcomas. Unfortunately, the surgeries there, and I actually had a patient I saw on um, second opinion who came in pretty much looking like a one-humped camel. Um, He had this huge mass between his shoulder blades. I mean, it was enormous. And the people were very devoted to this cat. That cat was seen at the University of Illinois Veterinary Medical Teaching Hospital. And the surgery involved actually taking off the tops of the, of the spinal segments of the, of the spinous processes. That cat had follow-up radiation, uh, did not have chemotherapy, uh, lived actually, did well, lived nine years after that. So the vaccination sites were such that we would, we would essentially, if tumors formed, uh, because removal of the tumor amputation is the treatment of choice, it would make, it would make that treatment easier. So rabies should be given as low as possible on the right rear leg. Some colleagues give the rabies vaccine in the tail. I've never done that, and that certainly is not, I think, a preferred site. The FBRCP vaccine should be given sub-Q under the skin as far down distally as possible on the right front limb. And the feline leukemia vaccine, if it's given, is to be given as distally as down far as possible, the left hind limb. Should uh, you avoid um, going below the elbow or below the stifle because of the risk of nerve injury? Or I, I never found that to be a problem. Okay. I, uh, I, I, I've never, I, I'm not aware of any, of any nerve or blood vessel injury that, that's been reported. I, I, you know, I presume it's, it's, possible is it is it likely no but that has been that has been my protocol since those those recommendations first came out and as i said i had i had uh, experience with that one patient uh who had the mass between the shoulder blades i had mm-hmm. another patient who apparently was vaccinated in the flank mm-hmm. and yeah. that cat did not that that kitty did not do well long term yeah. How important is it to use unadjuvanted vaccinations in cats? Well, I think the technology is such that it's very important to avoid adjuvants, and most of the vaccines now are non-adjuvanted. The problem used to be in the bad old days where people used what were called vaccine tanks, and so mm-hmm. there were multiple doses in the same vial. Most most vaccines now are single-use vials, so one vial, one patient. In, in, previous, in previous times, what happened is these multiple dose vials would be used. The rabies vaccine often included an aluminum adjuvant. And, you know, if you were the first cat, it wasn't so bad to be vaccinated because there was a lot of um, liquid that kind of diluted out the aluminum, right? But if you were the ninth or tenth cat, you probably got a pretty good dose of aluminum. And in the first publications of vaccine-associated sarcomas, they were finding aluminum fragments, and these are microscopic, um, in the tissues. 
Dr. Gaspar, we appreciate you being on the podcast so much, especially two episodes. Like that is a big commitment. Mm -hmm. So we appreciate it. Happy to do it. (laughs) And uh, we will see you later. Be well. And, And keep me up with your journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. Please. And thank you so much. Be well. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time.